to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm Tom Heyman, your host and co-founder of UserWise. We're here with Carson Taylor today. Carson, I always like to start with how did you get into games? Like, how, how did you get to where you are? Like, what's your story? Hey, Tom. Uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, I actually am a huge fan of the podcast um, and like a lot of your content, um, both personally and everything that comes from UserWise. Huge fan. Y'all do great stuff. So... A little bit about my background into games. Um, I was a huge gamer in like high school. Like I loved, like, like I'm sure everybody was, um, but I knew I wanted to get into the games industry. I uh, went to school undergrad to study like game development, uh, mostly like art and design and some of the more creative elements of, of games. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to come, you know, out of school with at the time, but I knew I wanted to do games. And so I experimented quite a bit in school. I kind of realized that one, programming was not for me, <laughs> at least at the time. <laughs> um, I also thought I was pretty good at like 3D art and design. And I was like, fine. But I started to get into some of the, I guess, higher level like group projects. And I realized that there are definitely people who are way better than me at like, you know, designing a character or um, really being super detail oriented about some some aspect of like digital art. And there are people who are way better at like level design and all these things than I am. And I kind of started to realize that maybe I was more of a generalist. Um, and that led me to um, like project, like I could be a project manager, <laughs> I, I guess. I realized. And I could be a producer. Um, and I kind of came to like learn what that whole field was about. And that was um, actually something that was really rewarding. I really enjoyed sort of like the teamwork collaboration leadership aspects of of that role and that's what my first job in the industry was doing my last year of school i was working part-time for an art outsourcing company so i got to as a producer and i got to put mm -hmm. all of my art skills um, my 3d art skills to work um, in a production context and i got to meet a lot of people through that work doing game development all over the all over the world um, indie studios huge AAA publishers um, all of them need outsourcing i'm sure we'll talk about that later <laughs> and that so that was really cool uh I, after i graduated i started working in project management for ea and uh I, this was like, this was actually very different. It was like technical, there was like, it was like a technical infrastructure kind of team. And so it was a lot of like data centers and like Oracle upgrades and like some like very, you know, proprietary EA software, but for like quality assurance stuff and like all this very kind of, you know, interesting from, uh, from a distance now, but not really what I was like super jazzed about, but at the time, but it was, you know, tangential to games. And uh, it definitely taught me a lot about like working in a big company and, you know, working kind of for a company in the industry. And I learned a lot about, you know, what a good project manager does. Um, but I was definitely like kind of thirsty, like thirsting at the bit, or I don't know if that's a phrase, but I was, I was really hungry to, to actually work on games um, professionally and in a full-time, you know, context. And so I moved, I moved back to Austin um, and started working at Zynga as a producer. Um, and uh, I was actually on a game. I was on, you know, some of their social casino titles and that was really cool. Uh, I don't know anything about, I wanted to learn about mobile apps. And so I really was specifically targeting this kind of role. Um, and it, like I learned so much, it was incredible. Uh, like it was, it was actually kind of crazy. 
and just like the pace of the work and everything we were doing. Um, and uh, I have been at Zynga for three years now. I got promoted to senior producer. And then last year I moved over to product management um, where I am today. Awesome. So you've learned a lot. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone wants to know, you know, what's the secret to making the perfect mobile game, Carson? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. I, you've come to the right place. I have all the answers. Um, you can uh, listen to this podcast and know everything you need to do to run a successful mobile gaming business. Yes, that's me. Uh, that's a good one. I was, I was going for, you know, I've got a new consulting fee, but you know, you can go that route too. Oh yeah. Support yes, the yes. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I mean, listening to this podcast will definitely tell you actually everything you need to know uh, about <laughs> perfect mobile game business, but you have to listen to every single episode. I love it. I love it. So you said you played a lot of games in high school, which I actually did too. In fact, <laughs> spoiler alert: my, my game in high school was Diablo 2 more than anything. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, it's also the reason that I can type really fast because they did not have a copy paste function in Diablo 2. And so there's kind of, kind of two ways you could trade something. You could like roll the dice and like make a game with what you wanted to trade, or you go to the trade channel and you like post what you have and what you're trying to trade for. But there were so many people in the trading channel that stuff just scrolled so quickly. So you had to like type out your thing over and over and over again and hope that like somebody would, you know, whisper you and see your offer. Oh, and so sure. I got really fast at typing just because I was trying to do trades in Diablo 2, which was funny enough. But yeah, what, what's, what's your game? Well, I actually, I, like thinking about that, I, I wonder, like, obviously that was not an intentional thing, but probably the lack of copy and paste meant that it was slightly less like spammy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you at least had to wait long enough to type it all out. Um, I played a lot of uh, Star Wars Battlefront Two and like Civilization Four, um, Age of Empires. Um, those are probably gosh. Game. I still play Civilization, like, and I still think Four is the best one. Um, I actually I still have it on Steam. I'll still play it from time to time. Uh, so yeah, so that, that was my jam for sure. I love it. I love it. Cool. So you're down in Austin. Mm -hmm which I feel like historically hasn't really been like a, a gaming hub, but it seems like more and more lately, like it's becoming more of a gaming hub. So like what's going on with the gaming industry in Texas? Is like, is it the place to be? Or is everyone migrating now that, you know, we're going towards this like remote workflow down to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's funny that you mentioned that. Cause like, I guess I didn't grow up in Texas, but I, I, I knew when I was like choosing, like, you know, looking at different colleges and stuff that I wanted to do games. And I probably was like, even at, even then I, you know, just due to interest, I was probably more aware of like the industry and the business side of games than your typical like high school gamer or whatever. Um, and I, I was, you know, aware that, you know, EA and Blizzard, um, had and um you know arcane um bethesda had offices in austin and like in the school ut austin had like they had this very nascent like game development program that really attracted me but so there has been certainly like a relatively large presence from the major publishers basically ea and blizzard um and then uh you know variety of a constellation of other studios for a while um and even back going back several days like um you know the ultima team and um you know lord british and like all these like very like influential game developers from like the 90s um were really you know set up shop in austin and so i think that that was kind of the status quo for kind of a long time but like relatively slow growth um indie studios certainly um you know a couple big publishers a couple mid-size studios um, 
um, and people doing VR, uh, which is also a, like a scene I was relatively involved in at the time. But definitely lately, like 2020 and, and since, um, it has is mushroomed completely. And you know, it's not. It's certainly not just gaming. It's it's the entire tech world that had been you know trickling into Austin from California. Mm -hmm. And New York um, really became a river of people. Um, I was, I think I, you know, every, every day, like there's some crazy stat that I need, like, you know, for every, for every one person that leaves Texas, like what five people move into the state or something like that. Wow. Um, and like, you know, in the last year, which is just, you know, it, it's nuts. Um, Austin is seeing a boom in all kinds of these related industries. And it's, I think it's the really building off a previous base of tech and gaming talent and investment that are now being doubled down upon by the companies that kind of already operated here. And that's drawing in, mm -hmm. um, you know, a wider and wider contingent of people. I'm like, I'm in like a lot of, like uh, a lot of like groups um, that of, and like tech groups and whatever that of people that moved here from California recently um, and trying to just like, you know, get their bearings on the the gaming, like the tech scenes here. Um, and those like, you know, these are groups of like hundreds of people um, and they're just like adding people every day. And it's like, even just like on this, like these small uh, individual scales, like it's like this, you know, this, it's like another one, another one, yeah. another one. And then, you know, look at like the macro statistics um, and it is just uh, you know, mind boggling for sure. Mm. Okay. So, but there's, there's, yeah. So there's a, there's a very healthy, I think, balance between, you know, there's, there are like the major publisher I mentioned, Retro Studios, which is a Nintendo studio is here. There's Arcane, um, there's Bethesda. There's, those are, I think the, um, you know, the big ones in Austin, you know, obviously Gearbox, Dallas mm -hmm. Gearbox. Um, and then there's a, there's like a whole spectrum of, I would say like double A to larger independent studios like Certain Affinity and Armature and Aspire, some of which are like, I think Aspire just got acquired like earlier this year, um, but all the way down to, you know, indie VR studios and like, you know, independent mobile game companies, especially in Austin and Dallas. And there's a, you know, it, it's, a, it's for the long time, Texas has been the second biggest state for the game industry outside of California even bigger than Washington state um, or Massachusetts. But I think that, you know, it's, it's really <laughs> just, you know, that, that number is growing, uh, whatever, whatever number that is, it's, it's growing. So if I was going to start a studio today, where do you think it should be? Is it Austin or is it somewhere else? I think Austin, I mean, like, I, I think, you know, a big factor in all this is obviously the income tax. Um, that's, that's a massive income tax and, um, you know, housing, which is, you know, expensive, but relatively cheap compared to the coast. So they're obviously like totally unrelated to gaming and to tech and stuff, but they are, you know, major factors in deciding where people live. And I think, yeah, I mean, I would, I would definitely say starting in Austin or, I mean, you can start in, so you get all the benefits of like people want to live here um, because of those two things, but also um, in Seattle, like the weather's terrible and they're <laughs> more, and the housing is more expensive. And then like in California, you know, you don't, the weather's great, but everything is so expensive. <laughs> then Austin's like, Things are relatively cheap and it's just a very, I think, pleasant place to live. And you can live here with a family. You can live here as a, like an individual. And there are so many like talent ecosystems and talented people here um, that it's just a world-class place for talent on par with anywhere in the United States and probably the world. And I think that it's that combination of all these things, um, you know, it's really, really hard to beat at this point. It, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's definitely like a kind of a flywheel at this point. <laughs> Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So 
you know, what is your take? So you've kind of done the producer thing and then you've done the product manager thing, you know, and now we've had COVID and we've done the remote workflow for a while. Um, do you think there is a benefit to having the team kind of in the office together, partially in the office together, fully remote? Okay. Like you know, if you were again, starting that new studio, like what would be your approach? Like, would it be, I'm going to do it in Austin because we've got all the talent here. So everyone can kind of come together and we can just like get those creative juices flowing or yeah. what would your ideal like work week look like? That's you know? a, that's a great question. I, I would say that. So working from at EA, uh, what, especially on like not a game team, like more like an, you know an, uh, a corporate infrastructure team, it was super. Like I, I I sat in like a desk in California, and pretty much I spent my entire day like on a, like a video call with people like all over the world, and like didn't really like <laughs> have much like didn't really have much interaction with like people that were in my office actually, which is very odd. Um, to, at least it felt like to me. And then. When I came to Zynga, I started working on a game team. We like 90%, maybe 85, at least 80% of like the people on this particular like set of games um, were in the, were co-located in Austin. And I think that is, you know, some, you know, to agree a trend, if you're like working on something as fast paced as a game, as a live ops driven mobile game, having everybody co-located can definitely, you know, make things move faster. And I think that we've to a degree seen that lately, um, just, you know, uh, working from home, but there was a reason I think that everybody primarily was in Austin. There were people at the other Zynga offices, certainly, but they were, you know, like, um, and they were important people, but it was, they were not the majority by any means. There are other, you know, and I think that is something that you'll see in most of the major publishers. I'm sure like some of the bigger games, um, they have core team members, very broadly distributed. Um, but, you know, at EA and, and Blizzard and Zynga and Activision and Ubisoft, like, you know, they have their studios and the studios are pretty co-located and they have, you know, the services groups, which are much more distributed. And I think that will probably stay that way. I think that there are pros and cons to that, certainly. Um, but I guess to get back to your earlier question, if I was to do this, um, I would, you know, I think that I've heard a lot of, you know, I have a lot of mixed opinions about this. I think that having a, a really small team um, that's co-located, like where it's just like you and um, your founding group, um, maybe, like, you know, if it's like, you know, starting out with like five to 10 people or something like that, having the majority of y'all be co-located is very helpful, or at least being willing to travel. I, I heard of like this, these like three founders that um, at least have the ability to like, what it means to spend six months in Los Angeles and six months in Miami. And like, they, they're all co-located, but they, they are not located in one particular geographical location. I was like, and that was like, that is crazy. Interesting. Um, I, they're not a gaming company, <laughs> to be clear. Um, but but also to that note, I think that you could do something if you were you know wanting to live that kind of like very mobile life. Um, but you could do something like that if you wanted, or you could also be have you know a leadership team that's co-located, and then I think as you grow that would be a good time to start uh, bringing on talented people in a more distributed way. So I think that having, you know, a core group of people that see each other, you know, every working day in person, ideally, or at least, you know, multiple, you know, as much as possible um, makes a lot of sense. Um, but it, you know, don't let that inhibit, I think, your growth. And I think that you can think of growing like a studio or, or a game team, um, both internally, you know, by hiring or uh, it, 
I think can often be an underutilized way to, you know, grow via contract work. Um, and maybe not underutilized, but it's something that I think that nobody's like always like at least super upfront or like excited about the opportunities to do that. They're always like, I want to hire like the best people or something. But, um, you know, just there are lots of flexible ways to grow without limiting yourself. Uh, and that's regardless of geography or like, you know, contract versus hire, I think. Oh, that's really great. I will say, as someone who all, always had this dream of like doing the uh, digital nomad, like you know, I'm yeah. going to live in Spain for six or 12 months and I'm just going to like master my Spanish, do it before you have kids. I have the resources and the ability to do that now, but it sounds awful. Like yeah. six months moving with all of my kids and family and it just sounds awful. But uh, you do it before you have kids. I think it could be a lot. Older. Yeah, I know, I know people that have done that actually with with and without kids. Um, and I'm always, you know, I think their stories are always very interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, that is, I would say like, that was definitely my dream at one point. I don't have kids yet, but it's not something I'm like looking to go spend uh, to be the digital nomad necessarily. Um, and I think, you know, you know, Austin, <laughs> I was going back to Austin, like people, people come here, they kind of get stuck here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Okay. I'm going to wind back just a little bit because I do have one question. You were talking about in college, how you kind of dabbled in a lot of things. And you said you didn't like computer science, which I find very interesting because originally I was like, oh, computer science is beyond me. Never real. Finally got into computer science and I found that it was very logical. It just like fit my brain well, very logical. And once you get past that initial like hump, I want to like smash this computer screen, you figure out how to write code the right way. It kind of becomes like a game. It's like, oh, I like beat this level and now I've got to like do this next thing. Um, I mean, I eventually realized like when I hired my first real developer and I watched him get into Vim, you know, it was like I, I made it into Silver League and League of Legends. And like now I'm watching like the pros play and it's yeah. like, oh, okay, I guess I kind of get this, but I guess I have no idea what I was actually doing. But I mean, I, I got the grasp of it and I could get it done just through like a pure you know, good things on. But I, I found that it fit really well with like that gaming logical mindset. And for someone that enjoys Civ as much as you do, I would assume that you kind of have a little bit of a logical thing. Like, was it more of like, I just don't want to do this full time or was there something else there? I know that's really interesting to actually hear uh, your thoughts on that too. Um, I would say that it's funny um, now that I'm like a, you know, in part of management, um, it's, it is not where I would have guessed I would be certainly when I was like in, in college or, or something, just because I didn't know anything about numbers. I didn't care about anything quantitative at all. I was like, I know I played Civ in like all these kind of like strategy games, but I was not a spreadsheet gamer. I was not like, you know, yeah. calculating like the different like trades I should be uh, making. Min like, max. Like, yeah, exactly. And like, I did it because I liked the experience, like the, the, the feeling, the atmosphere and the story. I was, you know, all these like, you know, the qualitative side of gaming, the creative side <laughs> I was like so far indexed on on that and then through I guess the gateway drug of like per project management and production like I was like I got you know started hooked on spreadsheets hooked on phonics whatever um I actually remember in in I I took three computer science classes and I started computer science classes in college <laughs> I I did the first one which was like introduction to like logic and it was like we never even touched the computer it was all just like like writing these like logic equations like and we I you know it could all be done on pencil and paper and like that's how I did it um and that was you know fine I guess uh, and then I took like a you know intro to like a first intro programming 
programming class where I learned like very basic Python, <laughs> um, like <laughs> printing lines and like doing basic arithmetic. And then I was like, okay, that was fine. I'll graduate to like the second uh, course in this series. And I like went to like the first lecture, first few lectures and like went to like my first study group actually. And I was like, actually so overwhelmed that I, I love you. Like I, I just, I <laughs> left, like actually, and like, I just dropped it down. and probably like a big regret um, looking back is that I didn't like stick with it. But I remember like feeling just like so lost and so overwhelmed about that. Um, but once I started doing spreadsheets just to track random, you know, stuff as a project manager, um, I started to get into like data analysis. And I think what frustrated me about um, programming, at least how I was learning it was, I had literally no idea how to like apply this. Like it seems so like writing, printing outputs in Python seemed just completely far removed from like a game <laughs> to me, even though it, you know, it, like there are some right. between that, but it was just like mind bogglingly, like I wasn't solving problems or, any, or anything interesting. But, um, when I started like learning Excel really well, and then like from there progressed to SQL and got really good at SQL. Um, that was just like, you know, mind opening, um, mm. in terms of just solving like very practical day-to-day -day problems that I was, you know, working on, um, like at my job or anything. And now I feel like, you know, once you, you know, there's a progression, like you can get that SQL and then you can like, you know, kind of like, I would, I would probably be very interested in like dipping my toes back into like Python, which I was trying to learn like all this, all these years ago and being like, yeah, yeah. you know, this isn't a data analysis language that like, and, like actually do really cool things with it. I'm motivated to do things with and I kind of understand mm -hmm. mentally how to approach it. But yes, I have done a complete turnaround from like being the Photoshop and like Maya guy to being such a spreadsheet like freak and like a SQL, like, you know, I'm, I have a, my SQL window has like 24 SQL tabs or something open right now, which is, it's like, I just would never have thought that, um, you know, that I'd be doing this, <laughs> that I'd be so quantitative in my job now. Um, yeah. But uh, I really enjoy it. And like, it's something that I, I would look forward to, to learning more about throughout my entire career. Thinking about product managers, obviously very data focused. Would you say learning SQL is a key to success there. I mean, I know there are some tools like Amplitude that make it, you can kind of bypass some of that SQL stuff. You can kind of get by with spreadsheets or like offsetting that to your, you know, data scientists or whatnot to pull stuff. But like, do you find that knowing SQL and being able to do those, you know, searches yourself just like speeds up things. And it's something that aspiring product managers maybe should be thinking about learning sooner than later. Yeah. In short, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> To be totally like in one word, yes. Um, but I will. I guess I would qualify that by saying like I think if you're like a, a product manager who wants to go into something that's maybe not necessarily free to play mobile games, you can probably get by with like amplitude and you know Google Sheets and stuff. I think especially once you get into free to play games that have like economies um, or are you know if you're like yeah, I mean then. It, like the rewards you will reap from being intermediately skilled or even beginner skilled at SQL will be profound. Um, and we, you know, like in my job, I use like all these like kind of reports. Um, we have all these cool internal tools that I can like, you know, that will tell me kind of like the, the main 
stats I would like to know about our game on a given day. Um, and that, that definitely simplifies things, but for anything more complex than that, like I find that I am, at least I augment like using like our tools that like our you know analytics teams have built like with my doing my own queries and using both of those together to like make a decision because it's not that I like don't trust like things that other people have built for me uh, they're very sophisticated tools but I think being able to say oh like you know there's different ways to calculate different metrics for example you'd be like say for example like our our analytics like tool gives us like a cumulative metric like it's like, it's like our arpu like or arpapu over like a period for example mm-hmm. that's interesting but what but it doesn't like i can't configure that to tell me what the arpapu was per, per day and that's just like a limitation of the tool um and mm-hmm. So if I want to know that, like, or if I want to, and I can't like, you know, it's like, I can't like segment that by, you know, players who made a payment in the last 30 days or like installs who converted within the first seven days. Like I, all this stuff that would be really interesting to know, like it's very, if you're going to learn to figure out all this, and if you have the ability to like do this and like some kind of like off the shelf or like internally developed, like in like you know, analytics tool with a GUI or something. Um, it's really complicated and you might as well learn to do it in SQL because it's a lot more flexible. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so yeah, I would, I, I would definitely say learn SQL. You don't have to be an expert on it. Um, you know, there's a reason that the PM is not like a data scientist. Um, you are just supposed to be able to like, you know, understand statistics and understand what to query. But if you like, I always tell people, if you can like do the full like code, if you've never taught touch SQL at all, I say like go to Code Academy, do the SQL course. It's free. That will get you to where you ever you need to be to like at least, you know, do like a product management interview usually. Um, and then from there, like you'll, you should continue to get better and better. Um, and you just will. But, um, you know, you don't feel like an expert, but it, it will help you so much. Um, for sure. It's like relying on these other things. Code Academy, man. I think I learned like HTML and CSS on there like, <laughs> way, 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 way back when. Oh, that's fun. I didn't know they had a SQL course. I might have to check that oh, one yeah, out it's, too. It's pretty good. And they actually, <laughs> they're a very interesting business. They've completely pivoted like a, a, a SaaS business um, from being basically like some kind of like, I don't know, non educational yeah. profit. But um, yeah, no, I think they're, I think they're kind of great. I, I have actually redid their whole SQL course like a year and a half ago. It's just started very fresher. Um, and it was actually very valuable. Yeah, that might be good for me. My, my SQL skills have never been where I really want them to be. And I think part of that was because I learned like Ruby on Rails as like a, a backend language uh, is one of like my first things. Okay. And the problem with that is that they have all these shorthand cuts that they write the SQL for you. And uh-huh. so I just took the lazy approach instead of like thoroughly learning it. So then I had to like go back in and teach myself SQL on top of that. So it was, it was fun you know, worthwhile. <laughs> That's how learning is. I feel like it's like, you know, I, I would certainly feel the same way with like a lot of Excel functions and stuff. Uh, so there's always that. So I, I do have a question though. So you said um, it's nice that you can kind of do this on top of analytics tools or, you know, where there might be limitations. Like, do you have any examples of like a time where because you were able to do SQL, you uncovered something or you figured something out that like really had a profound impact or kept you from making, you know, some decision that could have been potentially really drastic? I'm sure I do. I feel like, Honestly, that's, that, that's, um, 
you know, maybe nothing like quite so dramatic as like, you know, like we're hurtling towards like this cliff. Um, but it's, it's definitely something that, for example, like whenever we do like a, a like a, you know, quote unquote final report on some feature that we launched, we like are like, we finished the like AV test or, you know, whatever, whatever test we've been through, we finished the test and we're now like writing this 25 page documents that like details everything, you know, every metric that happened. We wouldn't like never, we have these very sophisticated tools that are built for us by like, our community engineers to analyze these tests for us and we use them, but we would never ever like just re- solely rely on something like that um, without mm. making, like querying the data ourselves and just like at a minimum as a like you know as a gut check just to I guess feel confident in what we're presenting because just haven't gone and got it ourselves but there are like I said like differences in what you know kind of like these quote-unquote self-service analytics like tools will tell you versus doing the data yourself and I think a lot of my frustration has been around the focus on cumulative metrics over a period versus daily metrics um and because I you know there are definitely benefits to and you want to look at both because you know if you're looking at cumulative metrics you obviously see which group ended up with like the higher revenue per user or like the higher you know revenue per like conversion rate or whatever metric you're looking at over the long over the course of this test and that's probably like kind of a higher level metric to look at. But for certain things, especially live ops events, which are on a very kind of daily basis, our a self-service analytics tool may not tell you uh, the daily lift in some metric, be, and it may like really camouflage that within like this cumulative like line. Um, so if you're like testing a new sale that you run every Thursday or something, um, you like, and you're not, and you're only looking like the cumulative, like, then it's not going to be very useful for you to see, because you want to see like, what is the effect of this on Thursdays? What is the effect of this on Fridays or Saturdays? If there's like, if there's like a hangover, like does, does the test group get hung over as much as the control group? Um, you know, there's all these questions that I think that you really need to be able to tailor your query towards what you're trying to understand. And like these analytics tools are more, they tend towards more of the one size fits all type of thing, regardless of whatever feature you're testing. So I would say that we've definitely uncovered insights that would not be available on like some kind of like GUI analytics tool in your browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also like, I think with, and this is more generally like a statistics thing, like whenever you're balancing like a test, even if you randomly distribute all your players, like among test control, some group of them will go into the test with a higher metric than the other group, just due to the nature of sampling. Yeah. And if your analytics tool does not account for that by some kind of like balancing or adjustment, um, and like to me, I, I've never used amplitude like um, or you know anything like that to be honest. Um, but I would just that whole thing I think can be kind of a black box. Um, and if you're not very aware of how that adjustment is or is not being calculated, um, then your metrics may be totally wrong. And so I, I just love having the ability to like, you know, calculate, like adjust my own metrics based on like, uh, the, the pre-test period. And to me, that's like a very freeing feeling and not having this like black box calculation saying like, oh, like we adjusted like this by X percent and like 
how and like why and like what what data did you use to do that so there's there's no i think like i'm sure you know there probably is like something like very dramatic story i can tell you but i would say that just like it's a very routine task for me and every product manager i know to um you know <laughs> definitely check everything they're doing themselves um yeah and just tailor your query to the feature you're trying to test um yeah. and not rely on one size fits all solutions so I think this is actually a super awesome subject that I think we should talk about. Okay. A, B testing, oh, God. how to actually do it. Oh, God. Because I've heard so many folks just doing this the wrong way. And so I'd love to just like go through a few scenarios and just kind of point out like, okay, this is probably why we should do it this way. And this is how you should approach analyzing it. And we're going to start simple and then we'll get to live ops events because I think that throws an entire other wrench into that because now you've got this second layer of things that can have profound effects you know, later on, but let's, let's start with something simple. Let's pretend we've got like a candy crush game and there's an experience per level metric. And let's say it, it defaults to 10. We are curious, what is the effect if we increase experience per level to 20, 30, maybe 40? So we got four groups. So we got like our, our baseline control group. And then we've got like our three other groups for simplicity sake. Let's just say we break our players into four evenly distributed groups as much as that's possible for sampling sake. And we kind of give them this experience per level. And we run this for a couple of weeks to get 20,000 players in each bucket or something like that. So we've got statistical relevance. First off, is that the right approach or did I do anything wrong already? Um, I would say that like, that's not how I would do it. <laughs> but, okay, how, how, how would you do it and I would, why? So, I would say that, so when people think like A-B testing, and I certainly thought this for a very long time, I thought it was something that was basically as simple as that or even simpler, which is like, you know, I think the classic A-B test is 50% of people get something, 50% of people get something else. And people think like, oh, like Google and Facebook are doing this to me all the time. But it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. There are a, a lot of different factors, and that's especially in a game that I think differentiate this from like kind of like the broader popular conception of A-B testing within like, you know, huge yeah. services. So in your example, um, I would say one, generally, unless you're like really concerned about statistical significance and like getting like a, a right population size, like just testing this change and like you know, 100% of your game's users, um, like, and I know this is a very hypothetical example, um, so I'm not trying to, like, rip this to shreds or anything, like, you know, <laughs> in a, um, a mean way, but, um, you know, you're, you're basically testing, uh, you have 75% of your players are getting some kind of test treatment, um, I guess, or, you know, if you have four different, yeah, um, yeah, and you're testing, you know, two, uh, 20, 30, and 40, yeah, so, you're giving 75% of your players like this like unknown quantity, which is like, um, you know, could be very good. And in which case you would see a lot of upside like immediately, but also the reason you're testing is because it's unknown. So I think that probably what I would do there is test like, and this is, we've done this plenty of times. Um, like you're saying, I'm only going to test 10% of my users at all. And like 9% of users are, or, you know, 80%, the vast majority will see no change. And yep. then, of this like 10%, um, we're going to give 25% uh, of that 10%, the same, you know, the same 10 XP points per level. And then the remainder of the 10% that we have like segmented into like our test group, 
um, will get treatments like the 20, the 30 or the 40. So you're actually, so it's like very few people are actually getting um, something new and unknown and different. And then within that same group of people, um, you set aside the same number of people that are getting the same things as everybody else. So we have like this kind of like holdout group and then a control group, which get the same treatments, but you're only measuring the control group compared to like the test groups. And with, and then you have to, um, so we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you have to balance, you have to make sure that when, you know, especially if you're doing relatively small samples, like the chances that they're imbalanced are pretty relatively high. And so you have to somehow balance them. Um, and that's usually done by like looking like whatever metric you want to measure. Like if it's, you know, levels completed, like levels completed per player or something in this example, you want to see like what if for every person in this group or for each of these groups, what is their average of this metric before we started this test? And you kind of want to like index their change during the test period to this like average pre-test point because like some group may some group may like have a higher absolute number of like in like this metric but they've actually like decreased from like the pre-test period where like another group may have a lower like metric during the test but they've actually increased from their pre-test period and that's like that is totally un like disguised if you're not like balancing based on like pre-test metrics i have a question so you said like measure their pre-test metrics of like you know level or you know levels played or something like that i've heard some people swear by the mantra of a b tests are only going to be relevant on new players that are acquired after the test actually happens would you agree with that statement that's you know i mean that's probably a more science way of doing it i'm sure i've never really thought or heard about that well the, but... the claim is is that like just because you made this change like this person was already in the game or there was other things that could have affected that. And so it's hard to say it was just the change that you made that actually, mm -hmm. you know. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so two thoughts on that. One would be, unless you're operating at like a massive scale, um, it is very hard to get like a lot of really to like, like in, controvertible results i think from almost any a b test um on the scale of a typical mobile game which maybe you know you probably have between 50 to a couple few million like dau um that's a pretty wide spectrum and if you're on the you know most games probably have like a hundred thousand or less dau and, if, and like you're just not going to get true scientific statistical significance um, for almost any test that you do with like that kind of population, especially with all these other factors that are working lighter, you know, operating like on existing players. Um, so give up that dream and go with, and at least, you know, measure your p-values and, but like, you know, we are not conducting science here as much as we like to delude ourselves that like, you know, this is all very scientific marketing, like scientific product management. We are following those principles, but, you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> it's like uh, the, um, you know, in Pirates of the Caribbean, when he's like, well, I heard about the Pirate Code and David Jones is like, they're more like guidelines and they are more like guidelines, um, but definitely know what, uh, what statistical significance is and what it means and shoot for that. But like, if I get a P value of like, you know, 0.1 instead of 0 0.005, like that's probably pretty indicative. Um, you know, this is not like, you know, cancer drug creation or something. And 
then two, if you only want to A-B test on your installs, like you must be a hyper casual game. I just like, there's just no way that it's like, if that, why would you like, there's all this value to be made and sure it's not totally statistically scientific to be made from testing on your most valuable in-game users. And that exists for any game that's, you know, not a hyper casual game. And just because it's not like scientifically rigorous, like the umpteenth degree does not mean you need to throw away these methods. Um, just recognize them for what they are, but you're going to get a lot more, you know, they are still valuable, uh, certainly. And you, they're going to be more valuable with the more valuable players you test them on. And those are generally the players that have been in the game the longest. Yeah, that's always the approach that I've taken. But like a part of me deep down inside always just kind of felt dirty because I'm like, I'm pretty sure this isn't scientifically correct. <laughs> yeah. Like, can I can I really be confident? <laughs> and I, I, I know that like some tests that I've done that metrically like things looked like they were right and then we rolled them out and yeah I think you know sometimes a change I ended up like negatively affecting both groups and while it looked like it was a positive change it actually just brought everyone down and so we've had to undo those yeah. things so you know I, I think it's just you know the nature of the beast and just something you got to keep your eye on but I, I love that final question before we move on to the harder version of AB testing <laughs> And that'll probably be our last subject for today. But final question, does this depend on the stage of the game that you're in? Um, and what I mean by that is like, let's say I've got a, I'm trying to make a hybrid casual game and I've got like 30%, you know, day one retention, probably need to make some pretty big mm -hmm. drastic changes. Well, one, should I even bother A-B testing and versus just like rolling it out completely to everyone that gets it? And two, like, is there any point in keeping the 90% of where they are because it's not good enough versus doing that like 25% bucket kind of thing that we pitched originally? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say like it definitely pays to test before you do something that will affect every single person um and whether that's for technical reasons like you should always like these like a, usually before any a b test we do of any big feature there's like a tech test which is like we just give the player the feature to like five or ten percent of people or some small number and we just make sure the game's not going to crash for them and or or something crazy isn't going to happen and then another thing is that if you even if you know a change needs to be made um and you this metric is you know 30 percent b1 is obviously not good enough but if you just push something to 100 percent of players even if after you've tech tested it it i think and it's success and you you know you'll see like probably some kind of change but without having some kind of even a small hold control group like actually what we often do for some of our features is kind of the opposite of like an ab test where 90 percent of players will get the new thing and then 10 percent mm. don't and that's pretty much like a we are very confident the upside of this new thing but we can't quantify exactly how effective it was without comparing it to something hold that group, we want, yeah. yeah we want to get like the full benefit of it basically but be able to you know this is basically for our own uh self-evaluation that's like oh this was you know x person more successful or not um so there is always that you really can't do like be, you know speaking of like being scientifically accurate like you know it is a spectrum of like how scientific you want to be but like before and after comparisons and i see this a lot in like you know market like market analysis kind of reports from center tower and stuff because that's all they can do like they don't have 
access like A-B testing, but like we'll say like before and after comparisons are very fraught with accuracy concerns. Um, and uh, don't do that to yourself. Um, that, you, you know, you have to you have to accept it from like the market intelligence people because it's all they can give you, but don't do that to yourself. Always leave like some kind of like small hold back. How, how long right. should that hold back group be? Is it like a month? Is oh, it forever? Um, I mean, it depends on the feature. Like if it's a for a seasonal feature, um, leave it the entire season um, for for one season or something. Um, if, if it's like a sale that happens, you know, you can probably let it run, you know, two or three times or three or four times or, or something. But it, yeah, that's very feature dependent, I think. Okay, final topic, which I think is, is going to be a lot of fun. What is the right way to A-B test live ops events? And I'll, I'll, I'll bucket that into two things, which we could go into more, but I'll bucket it into two for, for sake of time. The actual like events themselves of like, you know, the competition tiers and the rewards and stuff. And then like your special offers or sales kind of during those. Yeah. Um, I actually think this is actually very challenging. I think you can break it down into you're either introducing some new live ops event um, which is, which is very, that is to me the most challenging part is like, how do I have an accurate comparison of like, if I introduce like a new sale or a new totally novel event type, and I run this on a, like a test group and a control group, what do I do with the control group? Like, what do they just not get anything? Like, obviously almost invariably the people that get some kind of new event are going to perform better. Uh, so like, what are you comparing against? Um, and that I think is really tricky because if, if you don't have anything already really comparable in your game, like you'll see a lift, but you don't really know how much the lift. Like even if you're introducing a new sale type and you run the new sale type for X person of players against, you know, a Y person of players getting, or the same person of players getting the old sale type, if there are different enough features, like they're invariably going to be different and it's very hard to compare. And like, I, I think about that a lot and ideally you have some kind of like relatively comparable feature in your game already that you can like test this against. Uh, then for like configuration changes or like what we would call like tuning your existing events and doing new tuning for another event. That's I think a little bit more straightforward and that's you can ideally just give you know, yeah. whatever person of players you're confident in the new tuning and whatever person of players the old tuning. Um, and um, you know, that's, I think, pretty much an apples to apples comparison, but otherwise for new stuff, it can be kind of an apples to oranges or like a, you know, apples to crayon apples or something that's like not quite it, but um, the best you can do. Uh, you figured out a way to like quantify, cause you know, usually most games have like a baseline, like let's say in-app purchase spend of let's say $10,000 per day. Um, and I run this event, I can see what like the offer revenue, maybe I made $20,000 today from this offer. Um, and maybe there was even a little bit of a boost because players wanted like a re-entry into a challenge or, or something like that, uh, monetize them a little bit with the event, which is all great. But then, you know, what is the right frequency and how do I actually see what was the total success of that? Because maybe like my revenue drops down to $5,000 per day for two weeks or something. And then I end up, you know, like what is the right way for people to actually like quantify the effects of a event? I don't know if that makes sense. That is, I think, yeah, a huge challenge. Um, probably the biggest reason to run tests for as long as you can just to I think the the two effects that you would see in that case are basically like a hangover um, for cannibalization of some other like purchase point and those kinds of things can 
not appear for a while. Um, and so if you end this test too short, like if you ended like if you like ran a sale and like the sale was super successful um, compared to the whatever you're testing against, um, and you're like, okay, great, let's just you know bring this to 100% of players now. Um, but you know the sale is so effective because it gave players way too many credits, and now like there's this hangover effect. Where you yep. And so you need to definitely be testing the impact of your events on the game economy um, broadly instead of just looking at like you know your metrics for that day uh, and that that is a big i think reason why going back to sort of this cumulative um thing that i was railing against earlier like you know you can see the cumulative impact of on like a metric mm. across the test periods or just on a daily basis but i like to look at both so yeah um hangover effects um uh, as far as quantifying these things, I think that like you really have to know exactly how much revenue or how much conversion is um, coming from each uh, purchase points, or if, if we're talking about you know something other than like revenue conversion, the equivalent in terms of engagement, mm-hmm. um, then and you need to benchmark that to like a pre-test period. Um, the 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 overall metric that you want to see is like you know is is revenue per user increasing even if like you know conversion is like decreasing as repair is like rev per pair like increasing enough to offset that yeah um, and so you may see dips in some metrics and lifts in other metrics and as long as the lifts in the other metrics can offset the decreases in the other metrics then you should consider future a success and that's usually comes down to like rev rev per user um, yeah. Um, but yeah, like hangover and standardization of other price points, like, I think are the two biggest risks that are kind of just beneath the surface um, of like what would uh, otherwise like very exciting, like uh, very successful new features that you would normally see like a new from. No, that's great. Well, Carson, I, I know we're about out of time here, but uh, I always like to ask uh, one last question because it is the Mastering Attention podcast. And that's what's one tip or trick or way that you found to keep more players engaged and retained for longer. Yeah, um, that is, you know, I love I love the focus of retention on this on this podcast. Actually, you know, it is so important, um, the most important. Um, uh, I think that the biggest thing is like a balance of teasing players about new things coming down the pipe. Like, you know, a lot of games do really well with like every month. Here's our here is a dialogue with our live op schedule. Um, like here's what you can look forward to. And I was like, like this is kind of overboard. Um, but uh, great. But yeah, so you know something like that's like on the one far end of the spectrum. But you know, even saying like tomorrow, like a dialogue saying like come back tomorrow for a surprise. Like those things I think like very being extremely explicit about future new things um, is still an underutilized thing like messaging capability of games and then a second is doubling down on like the randomness of prize rewards um you know some games do like you know like purchase celebrations um obviously like you know everyone does it for every purchase but like you can do a surprise and delight your player in some unexpected way when they do something routine and not give that to them every single time. Um, and also don't, don't like tease that. That like those, both those two things in conjunction, I think are very good and still under you, like, you know, you see them in a lot, you see these elements in most games, but I think they're still relatively underutilized for the purposes of explicit retention. So I might encourage that wherever, wherever you can. It's fantastic. I love it. Carson, if people have any questions or want to get in touch with you, is there a good way for them to do that? Yes. Um, LinkedIn is great. Um, Twitter is 
participate. I definitely post a lot more sporadic, spur of home things on Twitter. So if you want to see uh, all that side of me, go there. But, um, you know, LinkedIn is actually something I spend probably a lot of time on. Um, and I would love to chat with anybody anywhere. Like this is a, I think the, the game, uh, the mobile gaming scene is like full of like really, I think exciting people that are putting out like really thoughtful work and content and like bring the community together like yourself. And uh, I love connecting with folks who are insane. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I hope we can have you back someday and uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Tom.